So having said Merry Christmas, immediately now I might have to say Happy Halloween. Um, For those of you that read ahead and know what our text is today, um, this is some dark, scary stuff. And um, I think Pastor Drew has mentioned how the uh, preaching schedule works. Uh, he, He puts the schedule together, and it's weeks in advance, chapter one, verse, you know, all the way through. And then on... On one side of the page, there's a column, and he inserts names in there. And for some reason, he thought it would be a good idea on Christmas weekend to give me this material. So thank you very much, Pastor Drew. Uh, we'll, I'll talk with you about that later. So let's open our Bibles to the eighth chapter of Luke's Gospel. And we're going to keep going through Luke's Gospel um, we've learned so much. We're about a third of the way through the gospel, and I don't know how long we've been—a year or so. Uh, so we've got a ways to go, but it just keeps getting better and better as we go. So now t- this morning we're coming to a uh, fascinating, actually gripping story, and it's an incident in the life of our Lord, which introduces us once again to His divine divine power. Now, obviously, Luke is writing a a history of Jesus Christ, and he's intending to prove that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is the promised Messiah, and he is the Savior of the world. So as Luke carefully records um, all the sermons and the events out of the life of Christ, which demonstrates his deity. So Luke is careful to show us that Jesus Christ has the power that only belongs to God. And he has the power to overcome Satan himself. We've already seen in chapter 4, we saw that in chapter 4, and then power over the animal world. Remember, he controlled the fish. He taught Peter how to fish in chapter 5. And then power over nature and the wind and the sea, which we saw last week when Jesus actually stopped a storm. Not only did he stop the wind, but he stopped the waves immediately flat like glass. That was, I just can't get over that. The wind part, I don't know why I can comprehend that a little bit, but the turning the water to glass is amazing. Anyway, so, so far in Luke's gospel, we've seen Jesus' power over disease, over death, and tonight, power over demons the underworld, the forces of hell, and fallen angels who operate under the control of Satan in an effort to resist the purposes of God. Now, the Apostle John, he wrote us that Jesus came in the world not only to save us from sin, but to save us from Satan. He came to eliminate our guilt and our enemy. So the Bible makes it very clear, starting in... Genesis, Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, God said, there will come one, the seed of a woman, who will crush the serpent's head. So now for the time, Satan has some limited freedom within God's design to work as evil in the world, but the day will come when Satan will be crushed, and along with all the demons... He, be, he will be bound for a thousand years during the reign of Christ, and then Satan and his demons will be cast into the lake of fire forever. 
And this lake of fire which God has prepared, he prepared for the devils and the angels. Hell is an eternal punishment for, the, for these demons. The only way a person could ever end up there is to reject Jesus Christ and his gospel. So, so far in Luke, we've learned that the true Messiah must have the right genealogy. He must be born of men and of God, virgin born. He must be the fulfillment of prophecy and must have divine power over physical world. And he must have divine power over the spiritual world. And the true Messiah must have the power and authority to forgive sin. The true Messiah must live a perfect and sinless life. And so Luke gives us the life of Jesus to prove that he meets all these qualifications. So if he's going to bring in a kingdom of righteousness and peace, if he's going to bruise the serpent's head, if he's going to bind Satan, as Revelation tells us, then he must demonstrate that he can defeat the forces of hell. And we've seen that in individual situations, but now we're going to see it in a massive way. The text before us is the greatest of all deliverances that Jesus did, at least recorded in the Gospels. Here is one man whose focus the story is on, who is possessed by at least, as we'll see, 2,000 demons. Now, if you were looking for missionary candidates, who would you pick? Now, this year at the, at the Rock, we haven't been working with missionaries uh, too much, but we have started a process in finding candidates. And in interviewing and talking with, with uh, these candidates, um, we ask them questions about their doctrine, their mission, how God's working uh, in, in their uh, ministry, how their, the work of God, the spreading of the gospel. So what would you think if we chose somebody like Charles Manson for a missionary? You'd think we're nuts, right? But that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. If you're looking for a missionary, you don't go to the maniac category. Unless you're Jesus and have the power to totally transform. And if you want to make a statement of what your power is like, what a better place. The more obvious the transformation, the greater the evidence, right? And I've heard... Uh, conversion testimonies by several of you, and some of the transformation has been remarkable. Now, some of us, not so much because we were like good moral citizens, so the outward transformation might not be as bad or as, as, as radical, but some of us, we were like in the gutter, and God has transformed our lives. And I've had people say to me, well, Cook, you're not that great. I said, I know, but you should have seen me before. So, <laughs> you're laughing at <laughs> Right? So these kinds, of, these kinds of encounters with the supernatural realm, they fascinate most people. We're flooded with books and movies, um, uh, fantasy worlds about wizards and spirits and aliens. But we on our own, no matter how clever we are, come to a misunderstanding of this realm unless we go to the one true source of the supernatural, and that's the Bible. 
All that can ever be known is what God has chosen to tell us. And he told it all in one book. It is written by God to tell us everything that he wanted us to know about this supernatural world and what is beyond time and space and beyond our experience and our understanding. And the Bible is filled with all these kinds of supernatural realities. And creation itself is the one that explodes on the scene in Genesis 1 as God creates time and space, everything that's in it. But the main supernatural event in the Bible is not creation or all the miracles in the Bible. The main supernatural event in the Bible is the incarnation, as we know it as Christmas. The Son of God taking on human life because it is Christ more than anything else that shows us who God is. He is the express image of God. If you want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. Now, around the ministry of Christ, while he is showing us his deity, we get a better understanding of the work of these demons. Because with the arrival of Jesus Christ to confirm his promise of salvation, the demons crank up their efforts, which causes their exposure. It's fascinating to me that if you go through the Old Testament, you're not going to find demon-possessed people. The entire Old Testament, with the exception of a very unique situation in chapter 6 of Genesis, where apparently some fallen angels come upon certain women. And those demons, if you remember, according to uh, Peter and Jude, were put into everlasting chains for doing that. But apart from that, you don't have any demon-possessed people in the Old Testament. Testament. You have a lying spirit, an uh, appearance of a medium in connection with a demon, but you don't have people manifesting that they're full of demons. And then after the Gospels and the Epistles, it's never uh, two occasions, Acts 16 and 19, but after that, it wasn't an issue, I guess, in the churches because it's not addressed at all. But in the life of Christ, in the three years of his ministry, there is a manifestation of demon possession unlike anything in human history, only to be exceeded by the time of the great tribulation, when the pit of hell will be opened and the demons will be let out and run rampant over the earth. So the kind of demon possession that we see in the Gospels is very unique. Now, this doesn't mean that demons aren't around. No, they're still doing their work. Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and there is a wrestling with these demons going on. And the forces of hell are acting active. They are resisting the purposes of God. You remember in Daniel chapter 10, where uh, God sent angels to deal with them. Those deceitful spirits, as Paul puts it, they prefer to remain anonymous. They're working behind the scenes, as Second Corinthians tells us, disguised as angels of light. See, they don't really want to be exposed, but in the presence of Jesus, they had no option. And, just, and Jesus just being there confronted them, and they, and they gave up their secrecy. And it wasn't that Jesus was attacking 
I mean, excuse me, it wasn't that the demons were attacking Jesus, and I think some people miss this. It's not so much that they were attacking him, as there was the, at the presence of Jesus Christ, he traumatized them and tormented them. They even say here in our text, have you come to torment us? You remember in chapter 4, when Jesus goes to the synagogue and he's preaching, this is fascinating. They're in church. And there's a demon in there. And he says, Ha, ah, what do we have to do with you? See, in the presence of Jesus Christ, they cannot restrain their fear. He was so terrified in the presence of the Son of God that he exposed himself. And that happens again and again and again when Jesus encounters these demons. And they would like us to define these things as maybe psychological issues. Look at somebody like Charles Manson. Why do you think he put a cross on his head and claimed to be Jesus Christ? Why is it that the most wacky and bizarre of these people have some twisted kind of Christianity? Because that's what hell intends, is to diminish the glories and the purities of the Christian gospel. So when Jesus began his ministry, wherever he went and people were possessed with demons, there was a potential for immediate exposure. Here came the power of God and the presence of God. And I will tell you this, that all demons are fundamentalists. In fact, I even think they're premillennialists. They all have the right theology, as we'll see in this story. But for the moment, Jesus has invaded the world, God in human flesh, displaying the power over Satan proves that he can bring the kingdom and bind the enemy and bruise the serpent's head, which was the original promise in Genesis 3, as we see it in this story. So before we run out of time, I guess we should read our text. So let's start with verse 26, and we're going to read straight through to 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, and when he came out into the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had, it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon to the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission, and the demons came out of the man and entered into the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out into the country. 
The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them. For they were gripped with great fear. And he got into the boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done. Now that's the maniac that became a missionary. This is an incredible story. Now I was told um, by Mickey, and I'm not sure if this is true, but Mickey tells us that this is where deviled ham came from. Where's Mickey? So we're going to break, break up our study into three parts. Three displays of power in this story. First, the destructive power of demons, the delivering power of Jesus, and the damning power of sin. So we're going to look at the display of power of demons, power of Jesus, and power of sin. And uh, Jesus sums it up like this in Luke eleven twenty. He said, if I cast out demons, I love this. He says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. You know, usually in the Old Testament, when God talks about his power, uh, and we ran into this a few times when we were going through the book of Deuteronomy, but a reference to God's power is the arm of God, right? Jesus said, I can conquer the kingdom of hell with just a finger. You know, the Jewish uh, exorcist, they had made an effort, not successfully, they had their little incantations like exorcists do, and they accomplished virtually nothing. If you remember in the 19th chapter of Acts, um, there were se seven sons of a Jewish chief priest trying to cast out demons. And the demons simply said to them, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you guys? And then the demon ripped off their clothes and beat them. Are you kidding? They had no power over the kingdom of darkness or the souls that they um, hold captive. In contrast to that, Jesus says, I can conquer the kingdom of darkness and the demons by my finger. Now, if somebody asked you, what was the purpose of Jesus' first appearance? Why did he come? What would you tell them? Salvation, right? Jesus said, I, ca I came to save and seek the lost. Save from what? 1 John 3.8 tells us. 1 John 3.8 says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The text says, to destroy, that's the action, the undertaking, the effect, all the results of Satan. 
So the Messiah comes to undo Satan's work, to deliver man's souls. Remember Jesus' first sermon back in, uh, in his hometown, chapter 4? He said he came to, to who? To the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed, to end their poverty, to end their imprisonment, their oppression, and their blindness. And he can do that, as you see here. Now, this is not like any of the other accounts of Jesus and demons, because there's so many here. You're going to see that there were at least 2,000 living in one man. You say, well, that must be crowded. No, they are spiritual beings. They're not physical, material beings. So we're going to look at the first point today, and next time we're going to look at the last two. So this morning we're going to look at the destructive power of demons, starting in verse 26. It says they sailed. And remember now, the, st the storm was stilled by Jesus, and they had just finished now their little trip across the Sea of Galilee. So they're coming to land, at verse 27. And immediately, they, it says, they are met by a certain man from the city who was possessed by demons. So after this storm... Their boat lands, it's daybreak, they've been sailing all night long, the boat hits the ground, they get out, and they're met by these demons. They've just been delivered from the most incredible storm you could imagine, and they had just seen somebody do what nobody can do. Even in modern times, we cannot control the weather. And in verse 25 tells us that they were amazed and fearful what they had just experienced as Jesus commanded the storm. Certainly they were still shocked as they landed on the shore, and immediately they are met by a demon-possessed man. And I guess the best way to describe this man is a maniac. This man is so out of control that you cannot define him in human terms. Now we can understand when um, somebody gets mad at somebody and kills somebody. We can even understand vengeance or war. We can understand retaliation. But it's almost impossible in the normal sense to understand how people do the evil that they do, massacre, how they drown their children, the horrors of these things. It, this seems to be something that's other than human, and it is. When the scriptures speak of having a demon, it's not a form of mental illness. It's actually a supernatural experience in which living Spiritual beings, which are fallen angels kicked out of heaven because of the rebellion with Satan, they now work to stop the purposes of God and the influences of our gospel. These beings literally take over a person's mind and body. They talk, they scream, they create all kinds of thought patterns and behavioral patterns. And they are all described here in the Gospels. It is not a physical de disease, although there are physical torments associated with it. So the question immediately comes up, well, how do these people put themselves in a position to get that? And the answer to that question is, I'm not sure. I do know this, that the Bible says that anybody without God, anybody without Jesus is a child of Satan and a member of the kingdom of darkness. First John ends by 
saying at the end of the fifth chapter, the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. So anybody without Christ is under the rule of Satan and therefore vulnerable if not protected by the salvation through Jesus Christ. What the entry points are, I'm not sure, but I can say this, as you study the scriptures, you will find that idolatry seems to be a way to throw the door open. Tampering in the occult seems to be another way. But as this story ends, the people who are the worst people in the story are the townspeople who were sane enough to bind this man up but not willing to believe in the man who delivered him. So let's look at some of the characteristics of this man. First of all, it says he hadn't put on any clothing for a long time. You say, well, that's pretty strange. What's that all about? Well, it's about perversion. It's about shamelessness. From the time that Adam and Eve sinned, there has been shame associated with nakedness. And from the, then that, the phrase uncovering someone's nakedness was equivalent to sexual evil. Remember Adam and Eve, when they realized what had happened, they tried to cover themselves up. didn't work. God had to cover them. So that little phrase, uncovering someone's nakedness, you'll find in the Torah. And the Bible is very clear about clothing and about modesty and about covering but also, it was a torment for this guy. I mean, in that part of the country, it gets very hot, and very cold. So it was a torment for this man because he was dominated. And this demons turned him into a shameless, perverted, evil person. Also, he was suicidal, it says. He was a danger into himself. Mark 5 recounts this story. And says, day and night he was gashing and hacking at his naked body with sharp stones. He was mutilating himself because Satan is a murderer, right? He's a destroyer and demons are just the same. Here is a man literally taking up sharp rocks and cutting his body. Also in Mark 5 it says, nobody could control him. The demon power was too great. He was violent and not only harmful to himself, but he was deadly to other people. In the account in Matthew, it says they were so exceedingly violent that no one could pass by the road. You couldn't even walk along the road down below without these demons come running and screaming down the hill to attack and to kill. And then it says that he wasn't living in a house, but he's living in a tomb. Obviously, you couldn't have somebody like this living in the house. So what would we do with this guy today? We'd put him in prison or a mental institution. And today, these people that have this kind of potential, we, we put them on drugs. And then when they slaughter a bunch of people, such as the Andrea Yates thing, we say the problem was she didn't take her medication. But in those days, they didn't have mental institutions, so what did they do? Well, it tells us what they did down in verse 29. The unclean spirit, and there was certainly more than one, seized him many times and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. This is the man who's got to be removed from society. So the only thing they know what to do is to tie him up. They put him in chains 
And it says, because evil spirits seized him many times again and again. And now we understand people like this have to be restrained, but look at this. It says, yet, at the end of verse 29, yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So no matter what they tied him up with, he broke the chains. This is superhuman strength. So here's the maniac. The last one you would choose to be a missionary, but the best one to demonstrate the transforming power of Christ. And in verse 28, the man sees somebody down below the tombs. So racing down the hill towards them, shrieking and howling like banshees until they see who it is. Verse 28, it says, And seeing Jesus... So the spokesman of these evil spirits cried out in sheer panic. It's this horrific scream, and he knows exactly who it is, and so do all the other demons. And then it says, not only does his voice scream out, but the man of the, under the influence of the demon falls before him. The last person the demons wanted to confront them was the Lord, who is sovereign over them and who has already determined their eternal destiny. The man didn't know who Jesus was, but the demons did. There's a lot of people today that are confused about who Jesus is. The cults, many religions, people sitting in churches. But the demons knew exactly who Jesus was. And then they says they fall down they fall down because they know that he has the power and authority to send them to the lake of fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, as Jesus puts it in Matthew 25. They know that he has the power to do that, and they know the plan is that he will do that. If you look at James 2.19, so it's like James says, the devils believe and what? Shudder. Tremble. That's a, they're terrorized. Tremble with great fear. They collapse. And as the man goes down, the demons fall down. They are panicked because they're in the presence of their executioner. What do I have to do with you, Jesus? Son of the Most High God. I'm telling you, the demon's theology is orthodox. They know who Jesus is, and there were disciples that weren't sure. This phrase, Son of the Most High God, is a New Testament phrase that comes out of the Old Testament. Basically, what these demons were calling him was El Elyon, the Sovereign God. And there were disciples that weren't sure. If you remember how we ended our sermon uh, last time, look back at verse 25. After the storm was calmed, it says in verse 25, they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. Who then is this? And here the question is answered. Some of the disciples might have not been sure, but the demons answer it. They know Jesus, Son of the Most High God. 
Now, this is very much like the uh, other demon in chapter 4 who basically said the same thing. What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So here in an amazing way, God gives testimony to his son through demons. Amazing. What do we have to do with you, Jesus? What's this all about? Why are you here? I beg you. They were begging Jesus, do not torment me. What do you want with us, they ask. Why do they ask that? Because in Matthew, they add, Matthew adds this little phrase, before the time. In other words, Aren't you a little early, Jesus? This isn't the time, is it? I'm telling you, they have an accurate eschatology, too. They say, Jesus, you're early. We've got more time. What are you doing here? You're supposed to be over in Israel dying. Why are you here? This is before the time. What time? The time of their judgment. And you can read more about this in detail in the end of chapter 19 and 20 of the book of Revelation. In verse 31, what they are afraid of is stated. Not to send them to the abyss. Not to send them to the bottomless pit. So we see here the tremendous power of demons to literally take over a soul, to capture that soul, and to hold it against the influences of the gospel. But this is not just a story about a man. This is a story about Jesus most of all. And it doesn't matter how determined the demons are, and it doesn't matter how willing they are, unwilling they are, and it doesn't matter how many of them there are. Someday Jesus will bind them, and there will be thousands of them, and he will bind them instantly. So the question is, can Jesus deliver the world from Satan? Yes. Can he deliver the world from the forces of hell? Yes. Most importantly, can he deliver you from the power of Satan? Absolutely, yes. Jesus has the power over sin. He has the power to forgive sin. Ephesians 2 tells us that all of us literally are under the control of the prince of the power of the air who rules over us. Jesus has the power to break that rule. His salvation rescues all those who believe in him from spending eternity in that lake of fire. We will be, by his grace, delivered from Satan in this life and in the eternal life to come. So who will he forgive? To all those that come to Christ, confessing sin and embracing him as Lord. That's who deliverance comes to. And to you, Christian, you need not fear. Let me remind you of Colossians 1.13. Paul says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Salvation brings true deliverance and protection from Satan. And of course, Romans 8 37, where Paul says, we overwhelmingly conquer through Christ. Now, I'd like to encourage you, after we conclude our sermon, that our prayer team will be over here to your right. And if you need prayer for anything, 
Maybe you're not sure what kingdom you're in. Maybe you've been dealing with some evil things in your life. Or for any reason, I would encourage you to come over there and let our prayer team pray with you and for you. So next time, we're going to see the power of demons. Their power is puny. It's weakness compared with the delivering power of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we are confronted with these destructive powers of demons, evil in the world, the hijacker of souls, we realize this isn't fantasy. This is reality. How we thank you, God, that through Jesus Christ, the power of sin and Satan can be broken. Many of us here in this congregation are living testimony to your power to deliver from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. And may you do that mighty delivering work for those who have not bowed their knee to you. Even now, your eternal glory and our eternal joy. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.